Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we have a special guest who's going to help us understand some of the concepts we talked about in our first episode on Singles Week and Singles by Choice. And that is Dr. Kinneret Lahad. She's a sociologist and assistant professor in the Women and Gender Studies program at Tel Aviv University. And in our first episode, where we talked a lot about the Single by Choice movement and the fact that, you know, frankly, people are a little bit scared of of single women. Um, we cited a lot of Dr. Lahad's studies and in reading her studies to prepare for this week, these episodes, it occurred to me, uh, you know, I would really like to ask her some questions. I wish we could do that. And so you did, Caroline. And, and so, yeah, so I, I emailed her. Yeah, and, and then you talked, you talked to her from Israel and, uh, found out a lot more about her research, which really ties together so many things that we touched on, not only in our episode on being single by choice, but that we talk about on the podcast a lot in general. Things like singlehood, obviously, gender, feminism, aging, and discrimination. And some of her study titles, because we love excellent study titles on the podcast, uh, some of those include Singlehood Waiting in the Sociology of Time, which is interesting because she does talk a lot about time and how there is a gendered element to time and aging in the context of relationship statuses. And then and I think my favorite is the terror of the single old maid on the insolubility of a cultural category. Yeah, absolutely. That is that would be my favorite, too, um, just because it's it's not that far off from reality. A lot of people do have these terrible stereotypes about single people in general, but specifically single women and how that whole issue of time is so interesting in that time for a single woman, let's say past like 35, is almost a whole different realm than it is for married women of the same age. Yeah, because that's when you start to enter spinsterhood. Even today, I mean, Kate Bollock, whom we cited from The Atlantic a lot in last episode as well, uh, just came out with a new book called Spinster. And speaking of books, you can look forward to a forthcoming one from Dr. Lahad called A Table for One, A Critical Reading of Singlehood and Time. So this is going to be a preview, really, of the kind of research that she's going to be including in that book. Yeah, and I made sure to ask her, and you know, this will be in the interview, but I made sure to ask her about the whole single by choice thing, because in some of her studies, she touches on how the actual single by choice thing as a movement is is rather limiting. And so I was I was really interested to get her take on why she's not such a fan of the single by choice movement, while she is very supportive of single people in general. So, without further ado, let's listen to Caroline's chat with Dr. Kinneret Lahad. So, I'll just get started by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do for a living. Okay. Well, my name is Kinneret Lahad. Um, I'm a member of um, a program which is called the NCJW uh, Women and Gender Studies Program at Tel Aviv University, Israel. And I 
write, I research, and I really love teaching my students, which is really one of the unique things about being an academic, is the possibility to um, make a significant change in um, in women's and men's lives. Well, that's wonderful. And what inspired you to take this path? Why Why do you feel that it's important to work with students to change their minds and change their lives? Well, it's a good question. I can't locate it. You know, I can't locate this at one particular moment in my life. I can, you know, recall all kinds of junctures in my, in my life course, um, which influenced my political thought, my feminist consciousness. Um, I can trace some of it to when I was um, 10. My father is a diplomat. So um, one of the posts we had was um, in Pretoria in South Africa. And it was between the age of 82 to 86. It was still apartheid in South Africa. And um, as a 10-year-old and I would say even 12-year-old, I just couldn't understand it. I just couldn't understand this um, the system in which uh, blacks are not allowed to enter the same places as whites and blacks cannot work in the same jobs and actually... The, the blacks you encounter usually clean your house or drive your car in, or clean the streets, but they cannot sit with you in the same cafe or even in the same bench. And I think that as a little girl, um, as a mature, as a, you know, just before becoming a teenager, this had a tremendous impact on, on my thought. Uh, this kind of injustice, which um, seemed, you know, like the most natural and ordinary thing you can imagine. You know, just, you know, there are people who are not, who are not worthy of the same rights as um, others. And it has so much, it, and it influences one's lives in so many respects. So I think that's one of the points, you know, which really influenced, which really influenced me in my life and made me want to make a change in the way people think and grasp reality, which is taken for granted, in which injustice and inequality are taken for granted. Well, you know, uh, Kristen and I read several of your studies about singlehood and single women for our episode about single women and sort of the culture and stigma surrounding them. And I was really curious how you chose to focus on these issues in your research, specifically about women, singlehood and sort of the social perception around them. Okay. Um, well, it was really a surprise for me to discover that despite the growing numbers of single persons in the world and in Israel as well, and despite that there is so much scholarly literature on family and marriage and parenthood and couplehood, at the time when I wrote my PhD or when I began thinking about What's, what my PhD will be about. There was hardly any interesting literature about singlehood. Nothing which really reflected the complexity of, um, of the singlehood existence. And what really bothered me is that how come 
despite um, the the you know that our lives are are changing and um, there is so much of course with many limits but there is so much relatively more tolerance towards um, single motherhood of course it depends where uh, towards um, queer um, marriage or queer couplehood or queer parenthood of course it depends where and how these things are far are far from being perfect but what really amazed me was that despite, you know, this rapidly changing reality, the stigmas and stereotypes um, against single persons is so strong. And what really made me sad is that so many single persons believe in these stereotypes and stigmas and internalize them and um, constantly ask themselves, why am I single? What's wrong with me? Why has everyone else succeeded in their lives? This, and I'm the only one who's just, you know, an eternal bridemaid or an eternal aunt who is looking after someone else's children. And I knew that the answer wouldn't be, you know, a simple answer because to say, oh, because marriage is perceived to be a better and safer and marriage is, you know, related to, um, to notions of adulthood and success in life and respectability and civility. It's not a good enough answer. And I discovered that this field was really under theorized. And um, that most social theory and even feminist theory is really not interested in um, the single lives of men and women and um, is mainly preoccupied with the family and parenthood and couplehood as the basic unit of analysis. Um, so my aim was also, you know, scholarly to, you know, to to engage in a new field of research, which I felt would matter to many people's lives and could make a significant, hopefully, change in the way they perceive themselves. And also politically, you know, to, to change the way singlehood is perceived and related and talked about, to talk about singlehood in a different way. Well, I noticed that a lot of your work uh, touches on columns that are featured on Ynet, Israel's leading internet portal. And so I'm interested in sort of the, the cultural aspect of, of your research and wondered how much of it is shaped by Israeli attitudes towards single women and if you found that those attitudes differ from region to region or culture to culture. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Israel is a very pro-natal and a pro-familial society. Um, women's biggest achievement is considered to have babies and to marry well and to have their own house and, um, you know, continue the legacy. And uh, so that's, you know, the, the one of the vantage points that Israel is really a very familial and natal and a pro-natal society. It encourages in birth. Um, in really in, 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 in a respect that you can't even begin to imagine in terms of the state support, for example, in uh, fertility clinics and, uh, you know, um, 
and the way, you know, um, people from a very certain age, from a, sorry, from a young age perceive the message, you know, that to be a citizen, to be a person, to be human, to be a social person means, um, to be part of a couple and uh, to have children. Now, what really surprises me um, throughout the years that I've been thinking about singlehood, researching singlehood, that the differences are, aren't that dramatic between Israel and other places I've, um, you know, studied and read about and, you know, scholars I've encountered uh, during the years I've been researching singlehood. And um, so I can't say, you know, in this country, it is, le- it is less the, a catastrophe than in others. I think that there are tremendous differences between the big cities to the small cities, um, between, you know, um, the center and the per- periphery. And um, the when you live in a certain urban settings, you might have a wider single community or more, I wouldn't say single community, but more single persons living and, you know, living arrangements which aren't slowly based on being in a family unit. So I think that's one kind of difference which is important to note. Of course, there are differences between Israel and place in other places in the world in which the possibility economically and socially to be single is almost impossible. And that, you know, creates, you know, studies about, for example, about um, singlehood in India show that, that it's really, you, you can't even begin to compare being single in, in Israel and uh, being single in India. But of course, when I say Israel, it's not just one thing. You know, um, there are so many differences in Israel. In, it is highly significant if you are religious or not religious, if you are uh, Jewish or Palestinian, if you live in the village or you live in the big city, um, all these parameters, um, you know, are part of um, being a single woman and enabling you to be single or not to be single. So, to make a cross-cultural comparison, I must say, I didn't find that very useful when I read about singlehood. Because um, what really surprised me when reading about singlehood in other countries is the how um, how in most societies, even if there can be very... Um, liberal or radical or very open towards, you know, other forms of living or even uh, embracing more um, open views about even minorities or sexual minorities or having a more re- radical political agenda. When it concerns couplehood and, and children, um, I was always under the impression that it's fairly a traditional state of mind. And uh, I assume that there are places in the world where being single is might be less problematic than in other places. 
but it's very hard to make these generalizations. That's what I'm saying mm-hmm. that I found more sim- during the year, during these years, I've been researching singlehood. I definitely found more similarities than differences. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, you, you talked about being surprised or, or not surprised by some of the, uh, the differences that you found. Um, but has anything surprised you in terms of attitudes that you've uncovered about single people or even statistically speaking, has anything surprised you? The extent, the extent of um, the fear from being a single person and what singlehood represents um, in the public, you know, in public culture. That I must say surprised me during, during my research. I remember when I just began, um, someone who just graduated from Harvard, um, said to me, what is there to, to write about singlehood? It's a pathology, you know, single people should just go to a doctor and get medication or go, tr- go to treatment. This is, you know, wow. nothing worthy to write about. Um, and this was, you know, a very, this was an intellectual historian, um, someone who, whose, um, political views are pretty radical relatively to <laughs> most people I know. And, um, and I found that this first common comment was really common, whether it was explicit or implicit. You know, that singlehood in many ways is a disease. There is something wrong with you emotionally, um, something that you didn't manage to do right. You should cure yourself and be like everyone else. You know, what's the problem? So, you know, make an effort, you know, work on yourself and it will and just be like everyone else. What what's the problem? So this this really surprised me the extent of the fear and the stigmas and uh, the disbelief of um, of singlehood as existing as an option for living, just as an option for living. You no, know, whether you are single for five years or forty years, you know, just. Enabling it as a possibility, one possibility of, you know, being in this world as a man, as a woman, as, as a, as a group. And this is still not grasped as a possibility that someone could actually be content or be at peace with because, you know, they are, these are all these assumptions that no one wants to be alone or you will die alone or, you know, all these truth claims, which are very hard to challenge. And, you know, you, and they are backed by very naturalized and essentialist um, assumptions about what makes our lives worthy living or what makes our life, you know, the good lives and the happy lives. So I must say that, you know, while writing about it and, you know, analyzing the, the different texts, I was always amazed to discover that. And also, you know, when I t- constantly talked about my research, for example, one of the 
questions which I'm, which I'm regularly asked, well, are you a single person? And, you know, I, I usually have answered that, that if I would have um, lectured now about, um, I don't know, economical inequalities, would have you asked me what my salary is? Which, you know, is a, is a kind of a delegitimate automatic, mm-hmm. um, you know, just ruling out everything you have to say, just, you know, assuming that, you know, you have to prove now that you are competent um, even to do this research, which narrows everything down if you're a single person or not a single person. Well, have you uncovered any responses to single women or, or singlehood uh, that differ based on gender? Are men or other women more likely to view single women negatively? Um, well, I think that women um, are subjected to a lot of pressure because, you know, all these beliefs of biological clock and, you know, the traditional uh, role role and even, you know, a destiny of a woman should be, you know, a mother and a bride. You know, what what kind of femininity can you um perform um without um having or performing these these roles. But I think it's very much also related to, you know, the, the question of age and time. I think that women are under a lot of pressure um, from a younger age. But um, I must say that single men after a certain age are also subjected to a lot of questioning and a lot of judgments and a lot of um, stereotypes like, why haven't you married? There is probably something really wrong with him. And, you know, how does one take care of, of, of oneself if he's still single and, um, constantly trying to, um, match, you know, eligible partners for them. And, um, so there are differences, but I think that at a certain age, uh, men suffer a lot from these stereotypes as well. Oh, interesting. Because um, my next question was about whether other constructs, not just gender, but other constructs like age, race, and class, whether they make a difference both in terms of the people being judged for being single and the people who are doing the judging. Have you found that? Yeah, of course. Well, age, of course, is a significant parameter because, you know, let's ask ourselves when does singlehood begin and when does singlehood end? Um, because, you know, we are all single when we are born, but we become single when marriage becomes an option or when couplehood becomes an option. So you become a single as opposed to, you know, as opposed to the married or the coupled. And, uh, of course, there is a phase which changes a lot. And this is um, the place where, you know, um, uh, religion makes a significant um, change, you know, in terms of the attitudes in which, in what age should a woman or a man marry. And, of course, uh, different cultures and, uh, there are, there is an age which even, you know, society tells us don't hurry, you know, experiment, you know, live with your boyfriend or girlfriend, 
study, you know, um, live on your own, travel around the world, you know, be independent, you know, establish yourself as a person, you know, come to uh, marriage life and family life prepared. And then I would say at a certain stage, you know, um, it becomes less tolerant and, you know, your singlehood is not so tolerated anymore. And, um, you're become, you know, there is more and more pressure. Again, it could be very explicit and it could be implicit. You know, it could be, you know, um, sentences such as what's wrong with you or let's fix you up, you know, with someone we met on the bus, blah, blah, blah. Everyone can ask you why you're single and what you're going to do with it. And it could be, you know, um, manifested, you know, in long silences and staring at you as the only single person in a wedding or in a dinner in which everyone comes as a couple, as a couple unit. Now, and of course, there is a certain stage in which um, in your singlehood uh, life course that you are not relevant anymore, that you've missed your train, that um, there is no longer any, you know, any, any attempts to pull you in to the heteronormative familial order. So, of course, age makes a huge, a huge, a huge um, difference because actually it shapes the way it shapes what singlehood is and what it means and what it signifies. Singlehood at 17 is nothing like singlehood at um, 24 or 34 or 64. It's not the same. It's it's an entirely different social world and perception of who are the singles. Now, class, of course, also matters a lot because some people cannot afford to be single. Some people need to be married uh, to survive economically. You know, in, in certain societies, being single is a privilege, is a privilege of being in, having the possibility of, um, taking care of yourself um, by your own income or by your family income. And, you know, many, many people um, have no choice but, um, but to marry in order to be supported economically. Um, that's, that's, you know, something we have to bear in mind. So when we talk about, for example, of the single by choice movement, if such a thing um, if we can say that such a thing exists, I, I'm very, I'm very critical about this term because it actually excludes many people who cannot choose to be single because they don't have their resources to be single, whether economical resources or whether, you know, even in terms of being in a society in which it is a possibility. Well, do you think the choice when it comes to the single by choice movement, why do you think it is so disruptive, especially if you're if you're broadcasting or talking about the choice that you've made to remain single? Why is that seen as so disruptive to so many people or to society? It's a very big question <laughs> and it's a very long answer. <laughs> But, but, but first again, I, w- I want to stress that, that I, I don't like the, the notion of choice or the rhetoric of choice because it, um, 
it it misses out a lot of the complexities of our lives in which you know and i think also in terms of the single existence you know i think um choice is is a limited term because you always choose from a limited you know possibilities that you have and some people have more possibilities than others so that's you know one one part of my answer to your question Now, I think that um, the single by choice is so disruptive and so discredited because of these assumptions that no one in their right mind could possibly wish to be alone. You know, this is this being alone is conceived as a punishment, you know, as something that no one would possibly want to. So. This is, I think, one belief that, you know, people say it's against nature, you know, and automatically, you know, these people who claim we are comfortable with being single or it's okay, you know, today I'm fine with being single. I don't know what will happen tomorrow, but today I'm fine. I enjoy my, I'm, I'm enjoying my life. I have my hobbies. I'm, I, I enjoy being, you know, w- Meeting with friends, having a rich community life, um, volunteering, having a career, you know, there are so many options of living your life which are not necessarily, you know, boiled down to, to family and children. So, but this very claim is automatically discredited as, you know, I think that often people say, oh, he's just um, lying to himself or she's just pretending to being comfortable in being single. At the moment, you know, the right guy will come or the right guy will propose. She will, you know, automatically forget this stupid, you know, ideology. She's just covering up her failure. And these beliefs are very strong. You know, it's very hard um, to deconstruct them because they are uh, related to the, the, the very fact, you know, that no one in their right mind or no one could possibly dream or wish for the possibility of not having um, a husband or not having or not being a mother or a father. So I think it's part of it. It's a long answer. It's a much, it's, it, it's not a short answer, but it's part of an answer. I can, I can try to. Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely complex. <laughs> <laughs> We can yeah, say that. Yeah, but it is still, but it is still very disruptive. It, it, it's, it is really unbelievable how much anger and disbelief and, and mainly, you know, people don't want to listen. You know, to these voices, and there are these voices. They exist. They exist in, you know, in self-help books. And um, a, a wonderful scholar from Australia has written about it, and I have written about it in Hebrew as well. There are these online columns and online blogs, and you know, and Bella De Paolo, she's a wonderful um, singlehood uh, scholar, psychologist, psychologist. Um, from the states who regularly writes about it and tries you know to change the what she terms as singleism as the discrimination and um, discrimination and uh, stereotypes that single person are are subject to 
So there are these voices, but they are constantly silenced and, um, and, and, you know, just, oh, they're not serious. Oh, they're just, it's temporary because singlehood is always conceived or perceived as something which can only be a temporary, not something that one could relatively, that not one that one could possibly, not relatively, possibly would wish for. This is not the dream that we've been raised on, you know. This is not what we've been told when we were, when we were three and four. We were told that one day he'll come along, the man I love, and he'll be big and strong, the man I love. And when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him stay. <laughs> the Prince Charming myth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've been socialized. It's very hard to, to, to debunk this. Well, since people, since people do tend to view singlehood as this transitory temporary phase on the way to marriage and babies and Prince Charming, um, I'm interested in, in asking you about your study, Singlehood Waiting in the Sociology of Time, because in it you talk about the issue of women and waiting in a way that I'd never really considered before. You write, the social representation of waiting to be married is still more visible when it concerns women. And Mm -hmm. so how do you think that things like time, or in this case specifically waiting, become gendered like that? How are they so different for women? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, Well, first of all... um, what, what really surprised me when I began uh, looking into singlehood, because actually my first thought was writing about singlehood and emotions, you know, of how emotions are constructed in relation to singlehood, emotions such as um, shame, for example, the shame of singlehood or the shame of being single. And when I... When I began analyzing the text and, you know, going through the literature, I was surprised that most of the sayings which concern single women are related to time. For example, um, you're about to miss your train or soon at your wedding. You know, in Hebrew, it's a very popular wish when you wish someone, you know, at a wedding or at a... Or even at a birthday party, you automatically say, oh, soon at yours, soon at yours. You are about to to be next. You are next in line. And, you know, you constantly ask when and, you know, and when is this going to happen? And why haven't you settled down yet? And our language, when we think of... um, of singlehood is really ridden with um, perceptions of time. And the very fact that, you know, that the perception of singlehood as a transitory phase is related as, you know, just waiting, waiting for, for this um, person, for your soulmate to come along and rescue you from your endless and hopeless <laughs> sometimes wait. And this is something that is very difficult to, um, to debunk in terms of thinking about singlehood, not as a waiting position, because you, you, you view your whole life as temporary and, um, at times not meaningful, which can only be meaningful when this waiting phase will end. 
Now, waiting and and this has been argued by by really wonderful scholars who have studied the phenomena of waiting. That waiting also um, reflects relations of power. And um, there are those who are waiting and there are those who are waited for. Let's think, for example, of the doctor. So the very fact that um, you are you are defined as a person in waiting means that you are vulnerable, that you have less power, that you have less agency, that you are waiting for something um, for something real, something better to happen to your life and change it. Uh, you can also look, by the way, about um, to, you can also look at um, commercials for uh, dating websites. One of the most popular, um, I think it was Match.com, um, Match.com was, you know, stop waiting, start dating. And this is, you know, a slogan which repeats itself in many slogans, you know, Take responsibility for your life. Stop waiting because the worst scenario is to be in this position, you know, of being passive, of just waiting for, you know, for your life to, to change. So it just means that your life at the moment is not really worthy, is not really, um, you don't really have something meaningful in your life until you engage in, in marriage and, and children. That's the sort of message I think many women from a certain age encounter in all kinds of messages they perceive. Well, so at what point do you think that women go from being smart about being or seen as being smart about being selective to being Mm -hmm. seen as just wasting time and being too selective in their search for a mate or even in just just existing, not even actively searching for a mate? Yeah. Well, again, comes the, 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 the parameter or the factor of, of age and time. Because, you know, you can be select, beggars cannot be choosers, right? So when you're in a position in which allegedly the social perceptions, um, are that you have, you know, you can select because you're in the right age, you have the right looks, um, you're in the right, you know, kind of social circle in which you can, you can find your, find your lid. Then, you know, you're smart about being selective. You're not, you know, you're not in a hurry. Your selectiveness is even admired. You know, you have, you know, you have all the possibilities. But as a single woman, you know, is, um, can be at the risk of gradually turning into an old maid, then her selectiveness becomes just, you know, another form of self-deception or even, you know, a pathology. Um, there is even this term um, called chronic singlehood, inter- which means, you know, that there are people, you know, who are just too selective, you know, who just, you know, are just trapped in their own selectiveness and choosiness. And in that respect, you know, when you say beggars cannot be choosers, you refer to women above a certain age as someone who do, who does not have too many options. And therefore, her selectiveness is just empty. 
And there are, are so many contradictory messages which uh, single women, you know, encounter, you know, just compromise, you know, just do the right thing. And, you know, many single women ask, how can I compromise, compromise and what? And, you know, it's very funny to see all these self-help guides and all these online columns and, you know, meet an expert, you know, having, you know, this kind of solution on how to compromise. So basically, selectiveness at a certain age is not an option. This is just a disguise. It is a pathology. It's a very interesting transition. Well, I wonder whether our pop culture is helping or hurting in terms of the image that we have of the single woman, especially the, the single woman above a certain age. And so what do you what do you think? What does it mean for us that so many movie and TV plots about single women end with their redemption through finally finding a man. You know, you have Bridget Jones and Sex and the City, mm-hmm. and both of the protagonists in in those plots were women, uh, you know, who weren't 24 anymore. So so what do you think? Yeah. What do you think uh, that says about us? Well, I think that I'm really you asked me before if I was surprised. <laughs> so I'm still surprised how traditional and how conservative popular culture is when it comes to um, perceptions of singlehood. Sometimes my students ask me if uh, if I know any alternatives, social scripts which are represented in movies or television series, and it's very hard to find ones. It's it's quite surprising how rare are these alternative scripts of singlehood as a form of living, you know, as a way of living, just as, you know, you choose or you don't choose or, you know, just as just as another aspect of your life, not totally depicting who you are and what you are. But um, there is always, you know, this this character of, you know, of this single woman who just, you know, all she wants to do is, you know, be rescued and be saved by by Prince Charming. Um, so I think that popular culture, um, unfortunately, has yet to offer uh, single women and I think men alternative images of uh, singlehood. There are these alternatives online, which is fascinating in terms of blogs and in terms of online columns, and in terms of self-help books, but in uh, most mainstream movies and television series, it is so traditional and conservative, even when it presents itself as something radical. And it again, it it shows us, you know, how these perceptions are so um, strongly embedded in in you know our collective perceptions of what is perceived to be, you know, the right life course or the good and worthy lives. Well, so far, not only our conversation, but really a lot of the, whether it's columns you read online or the self-help type books that you read, uh, a lot of those conversations pretty much focus on single heterosexual women. And so I'm wondering if you have found 
that any of the attitudes and other things you've uncovered in your research, if any of those attitudes and social pressures and stereotypes also affect lesbian and bisexual women? Yes, definitely. Definitely so. I think that... Um, I- Of course, I, I haven't studied it, but I am interested in that. And surprisingly, there is hardly any research done about that issue. And I hope there will be at a certain stage, you know, because singlehood is gradually becoming, um, there are more and more people writing about singlehood. So I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm a scholar in waiting for someone um, to engage in that. But from what I read and from my general impression, of course, there are differences and the expectations can be articulated in a different way or in a different, you know, uh, terminology. But um, in Israel, I could definitely say that there are there is a very interesting baby boom among, you know, also homosexuals. And um, bisexuals and um, lesbians, and um, th- they are also becoming more and more subjected to a lot of pressures of being coupled and having children. And um, there are many, you know, um, there is in what Lisa Dagan, you know, terms as homonormativity. I can definitely say that. Um, you are expected to be in a couple in 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 many ways it can, it has of course differences in terms of age you know the age limit is a bit different but my own perception is that also if you look at most um move, most of the traditional uh, movies or mainstream movies in which um Um, homosexual or, or lesbians are so little, uh, which concern, um, so few, which concern, uh, bisexuals. But, um, still, you know, the plot usually is with a happy ending. Or the plot usually revolves around, you know, it's a plot about, you know, couplehood and having affairs. And, um, now more and more, um, More and more TV series engage, of course, with questions of parenthood. But um, it is interesting that the very transition or, you know, the, the if in certain parts of society there is more legitimacy, it is also this kind of legitimacy comes the expectation to be, and of course, I, I'm, I'm not saying it, you know, as something I'm, I mean, you know, to become normal, to become like us. And um, what Lisa Duggan uh, talks about when she talks about homonormativity is, you know, being like us is, you know, entering, you know, the, the couple unit and reproducing like us, being part of society. This is considered by many, you know, as an indication of being normal, of being healthy, being acceptable. So essentially what you're saying is that as society basically becomes more okay with uh, the LGBTQ community, a sign of that is also saying, okay, well, you're here and we accept you and now you better start getting married and having babies to fit into society. Yeah, yeah. You know, of course, it's a very, you know, general way of saying it. And right. of course... 
And of course, the, the, we're, we're still very, very far. You know, the LGTB movement is still, you know, suffers from a lot of stigmas and, you know, stereotypes and discrimination everywhere in so many different ways. But I, I would say that one of the messages that, um, that, um, we can hear is, yeah, being normal means being, you know, performing, you know, heteronormativity is performing as being part of society through getting married and having, having children. This is, of course, not, not my claim. A couple of very interesting queer, queer scholars have, have argued it <laughs> before me. And that, that's a fascinating topic. Right. To think about, you know, about the possibility of being single above a certain age, you know, at different um, sexual orientations. Well, uh, Dr. Lahad, you've you've basically answered all of my questions, all of my very many questions for you. And so I'm wondering, is there anything about singlehood or single stigma or, or single women in general that you feel like we didn't touch on that you think our listeners would be interested in? Um, there is one thing, and this is something now that I've been thinking a lot about, is how to politicize singlehood in terms of how to talk about singlehood, which is not only related, you know, in, which is, does not only relate with the need to, uh, combat stereotypes and, and, co- and, you know, and, and debunking this equation, you know, of singlehood being unmarried, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of the, the, one of the things we need to do is to start thinking of singlehood as a, another way of living not as a different way of living, as another way of living, and talk more about how um, single persons are discriminated in terms of their taxes, that they pay much more taxes, in terms of that in most societies, um, the accommodation and living arrangements are not suited for single persons. Um, you know, talk about, you know, as every... You know, claim, make, you know, public claims and talk about rights and, um, not be in, in this position in which you have to apologize or justify your singlehood, but say, listen, I'm single, I'm a single person and I'm discriminated economically and let's do something about it. And it's pretty interesting that, um, there is hardly any, you know, um, when you look, you know, at politics and you look at, you know, at political manifestos and, um, you know, the, uh, politicians agenda, you know, everyone speaks in the name of the family, but no one thinks that, you know, singlehood is something that should be, you know, represented and, um, fought for. And I think that's the next step. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's that's a whole other topic in terms of politics and economics that we did not even get into. But that is very important. I think it's really, really important. And um, and um, and as I mentioned before, uh, Bella De Paolo wrote writes about it. And Rachel Moran, who is a legal scholar, wrote many years ago and wonderful article 
which the title of this article is why has Fe- why has second wave feminism forgot the single woman and unfortunately i can say that about third wave feminism and even fourth wave feminism and feminism today you know it is not on the agenda of feminist um organizations or feminist theory or you know queer queer movements or human rights movements it is it is not existent not it is not existent as a, an option cognitively and even you know politically in the public sphere and i think that uh, you know this transition this cognitive transition in our perceptions of what is singlehood can also and should also occur in terms of new kinds of in thinking about uh, singlehood in political terms absolutely well thank you so much for talking to me today and could you please tell our listeners where they can find out more both about you and about your research and if you have any other uh, further reading suggestions for them? Oh, that's a wonderful question about further reading for them. Well, the first of all is Bella Di Paolo, as I've mentioned her before. She has um, some wonderful, uh, she has her own blog. If you just Google her, you can find a lot of information about singlehood, um, et cetera. And uh, there are some wonderful books who have been published um, on this matter um, Reynolds, who wrote about uh, this, the discursive, um, or I forgot now the name, but Jill Reynolds, who wrote about a singlehood, and Elaine Trimberger, who has written about the single woman as well, and um, Anita Taylor, who has published her book on singlehood about uh, two years ago, which is also very enriching. Uh, my own articles can be uh, found on a uh, wonderful um, website, which is called Academia. You can just um, look me up, Kineret Lahad, at academia.com. And there, you know, I, I have a couple of my articles online. And hopefully in, in a year, um, the book will be published and I'll be happy. <laughs> and some of my thoughts are expressed there as well. Well, wonderful. I can't wait to pick up your book, even if we do have to wait for a year. Yeah, you know, waiting is part of our, our living. That's right. <laughs> yeah, bringing it all back to waiting in time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you so much again. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much to Dr. Lahad for speaking with us and offering some reading recommendations. And if you want to read more of Dr. Lahad's work, she has a profile over at academia.edu and just search for her name, which is K-I-N-N-E-R-E-T-L-A-H-A-D, Kinneret Lahad. Well, and now we want to hear from you. We've already gotten some great letters about our single by choice episode, but we want to hear what your thoughts are about sort of your life as a single person or if you have single friends. Have you experienced any level of sort of social panic about your own relationship status? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. 
So conveniently, we have a couple letters here about our previous episode on the single by choice movement. Uh, this one's from Yvette. She says, I've seen Kristen's videos for a while and only this past week I found your podcast. Welcome, Yvette. She says, love all the topics you cover. Your most recent one on being single is pretty on point. Yes, I told myself at 13 years old that I would be okay with never getting married. I confessed this in seventh grade sex ed class. My Catholic school called it family life, and boys and girls were split into two separate classrooms and teachers. To which my teacher responded, Oh, you'll find Mr. Wright one day. You never know. And I remember even my friends were like, You don't want to get married? Some even suggested to me to become a nun. I was a bit more Catholic at the time. It's pretty sad to see 13-year-old girls being weirded out by the fact that at that age, I didn't want to get married. Of course, later on in life, this question would come up every so often. It gets worse when my Mexican family gets involved, although lately they've been more easy on me with being okay with that choice. I've had one serious relationship, and after we broke up, I forgot what it was like to be single. I've been single for the past five years, and I enjoy it a lot. I don't need to break the bank on dates, and I use that money to good use, mostly for paying off student loans and traveling. Plus, I like spending time with friends more when I can. If I did find that someone, I would be okay with cohabitating with them until things didn't work out. Kids are out of the question for me for now. I'm 24, and it does get weird when I see all these people I went to school with engaged and married and having babies. And I'm just here like, well, good for them, I guess, but aren't we still too young? So yeah, single life for the win. (laughs) Thank you, Yvette. And I've got a letter here from Louise, and she writes... I just finished listening to the Single by Choice episode and have to say that it resonated with me. I was divorced in 1989 and have been single by choice ever since. I've been the recipient of many of the comments and attitudes discussed on the podcast. In the decade after my divorce, I was frequently told by men in particular that I was being too picky by not finding a second husband. My gut reaction was always, huh? I always felt as if I was being criticized by men who were neither good looking nor interesting as individuals. I don't have a model type body, but I am and always have been very active, running, biking, backpacking, kayaking. It was as if I couldn't live a full and happy life without a man in it. I had the opposite interaction with women, and it's something that you didn't discuss in the podcast. My female friends often said they were jealous of me because I could do what I want when I want. They also felt that not having to discuss or compromise on household issues was a positive thing, especially when it came to decisions about raising my two children, while they didn't envy my single parenthood. These comments were always honest, never meant to be snide or hurtful. I enjoy being single and living alone. When my family comes to visit or we go on family vacations, I find that I'm always ready by vacation's end to be back in my apartment and have some alone time. I never regretted my single life, I'm 54 years old, and wouldn't trade it for anything. People may say that it's because I came from, quote, a broken home or had a, quote, bad marriage, but aren't we all products of our environments and gene expressions? I did not choose single life because of negative experiences. I chose the single life because deep down inside it makes me happy, content, and fulfilled. So thanks for your perspective, Luis, and keep your single-by-choice perspectives coming, friends. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to Dr. Lahad's work so you can read up on more single-by-choice research, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 